So, um, mostly after many years of practice, I still find it is very challenging. Uh, I don't know if that's disappointing or inspiring. (laughs) Uh, But it's important to perhaps, although the practice is always pointing very immediately to being present, uh, here and now, it's very simple. Uh, what one faces in the activity of being present, facing the momentum of the karma of one's life, is challenging. It's not necessarily that easy, not necessarily always that peaceful. And uh, one thing I'm sure we have shared today. Uh, is the experience of suffering in some form or another. Uh, And if you haven't experienced that, that's wonderful. Either you're already enlightened and you can just send lots of loving kindness to the rest of us. Uh, Or maybe you just had a lucky day, I don't know. And this experience of, of dukkha, suffering... It's not easy to bear. It's not easy to to meet. When I did my very first retreat many years ago, I I was completely uh, overwhelmed by the experience of suffering and I had no idea why, really. I'd come on retreat with the notion that, it, that I was going to get very peaceful and, and, com- and completely the opposite happened, in fact. It was, <laughs> I was in absolutely excruciating physical pain for no, for no apparent reason very quickly. I was sort of, felt like I was sitting on a bed of ants the whole time. I, I had to put myself right at the back because I felt so embarrassed that I was disturbing all these amazing meditators I was shifting around shifting my posture getting more and more cushions getting chairs getting against a wall and I remember there was this guy sitting on the other side of the back on the wall and we just sort of would look at each other from time to time in, com- in complete sort of like <laughs> despair <laughs> and I'd look up the front of the room and these people would be sitting there unmoving uh, sure, they were all enlightened, and I, it made me feel even more despairing. And about five days in, which was about five eons, felt like about five eons of endless kalpas of time, I decided to pack my bag and leave. I just really couldn't take it. And uh, I was doing the retreat outside of Oxford in one of these old um, English manor sort of country estates and I decided to make an escape plan and to do it when no one else would be looking of course so I could just sort of quietly leave and that would be the end of that but what I didn't realize as I said about uh, leaving is that I had chosen unwittingly the tea time and as I started to go down the driveway of this large country mansion, 
and it is 70 other retreatants sitting there having their tea looking out of the bay window. (laughs) At least that's what it felt like, looking at me, of course, leaving. And uh, so then I had to devise another plan and come back up the drive as if nothing was happening. (laughs) And then went to the field next and sort of waded through stinging nettles and brambles and weeds and got to finally got to the road feeling a bit worse for the wear and as a student of course I didn't I had actually come with some friends in a car and I didn't I, I didn't really have enough money to get back to wherever I was going so I started to hitchhike um, and no one of course <laughs> no one stopped so it was perfect really I mean this whole escape plan totally failed and I had to sort of humbly walk back and unpack my bag and <laughs> sit out the next five eons of the retreat. And, uh, but there was, there was something about just in turning to, to surrender, really, to just surrender into the form of it and to, to be with the experience. And in the end, it didn't really get a lot better, I have to admit, although there was some moments of peacefulness. I, I did get a, something, some inkling, uh, but it was powerful. It was powerful to just be there and to be confronted, really, with the experience of suffering without distraction, without escape. I don't know if it was a very skillfully held retreat and there wasn't really much checking in or anything like that, but... Uh, you know, or, I mean, we had a, a teacher that couldn't speak English. He was a... Burmese monk would just say, just observe. I actually really didn't even know quite what to observe. So you know, I figured out in the end it was the breath. And that helped a bit. <laughs> so anyway, it was a very strange experience and I got through it. But, but this, this whole encouragement to, you know, to, to, to be with, to meet our experience here and now. And so for many of us today, whether it's been in the shape of one of the hindrances, the uh, feeling of wanting to get somewhere else or the feeling of aversion that we've been contemplating, resistance, whether it's uh, the dullness, the sleepiness that can just come over us like a wave and wash us away, wash us back up to our bed, go unconscious for a while and then wake up and we're still here. Uh, feeling of dread that can come up whether it was restlessness, agitation, anxiety, sometimes just very subtle anxiety, not even sure exactly what it's about, or fear, uh, or the sense of just confusion, doubt, not sure, ambivalence, what's going on, anguish, kinds of states of mind that we usually distract ourselves from or physical discomfort, pain in the body. Um, so in the, when the Buddha laid out his teaching, he, he began with a, a teaching that we can all relate to, with the, the uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths, with the laying out of these truths, or these ennobling truths, these contemplations that are part of our experience from the, from the experience of suffering to the possibility 
to the resolve of it or the healing of it or the release from it. He laid out the, the pathway, the contemplative pathway through this really mysterious experience in some ways of suffering. Why, why should there be suffering? And, you know, it's, you sit here in this guy house, very pleasant. Uh, people are very nice, seem to be nice, lovely food, comfortable. And yet there can be this very, uh, uh, very powerful experience of uh, discontent, unsatisfactoriness and, and suffering. And when the, when the, the way that the, the teaching was laid out was to name the territory we're in. And in each aspect of the four truths, from the experience of suffering to the release of suffering, the Buddha recommended a, a way of practice, a way to meet, a way to be with each aspect of this journey. Right? So it's very practical, it's a very accessible way of working through this transformative process that suffering inducts us or initiates us into. When we no longer distract ourselves from it or avoid it, but turn to meet it. And this is what the Buddha encouraged. His first laying out of the teaching, he just made the statement, there is this experience of dukkha. He didn't even put it in a a personal way. You're just a bunch of suffering, or he didn't even put it as a description of the world. The world is suffering. He didn't even put it like this. He just—it was just a very simple statement of fact. There is there is this experience of dukkha, and that it needs to be the practice that he encouraged in relationship to this experience is that it needs to be understood, or it needs to be turned to. It needs to be contemplated. It needs to be reflected on, to be met. And clearly it's not easy. Clearly that's very challenging because we have so many habits and uh, strategies to avoid meeting the unsatisfactoriness of our experience. We have a billion dollar industry that that distracts, that can keep us absorbed uh, in, in sort of... Realms of fantasy, realms of distraction uh, from our human condition. We have, uh, we we are often our relationship to this experience isn't one that where we we turn to it when we meet it. We we first of all we take it very personally. We feel like there's something wrong with me because I'm suffering. There's something bad, or there's somehow I'm a failure, or I've done something wrong. If I was a better meditator, I wouldn't experience this anxiety. It should be gone by now. I wouldn't experience this restlessness. And so we interpret the experience very through, you know, as a personality, as someone that's suffering. 
which compounds compounds it even more, or we project it out. We we can't really be with it. We feel it's because of the world around us that's making us uncomfortable. Someone else is doing doing it to us, or something is doing it to us. Or we repress it, you know, push it push it away, deny it, or, or distract. Just move away. It's uncomfortable. We just, you know, as Kinesa was saying last night, just shift the channel. So this, in this kind of a retreat experience, the strategy, our usual strategies of avoidance, distraction, uh, don't, don't aren't that available to us, and we're confronted. We become confronted. Uh, and sometimes it's even hard to know why. Why? Why is this experience like it is? And even that becomes, the Buddha said, you know, that that can be problem, problematic. We can start to speculate. Why am I experiencing this? What did I do in a past life? And you know, and, and why is this happening to me? And what? <laughs> why do I feel this feeling? What kind of genetic kind of thing did I pick up from generational patterning from my weird family? <laughs> They, you know, this is you know, so we can start speculating about the experience and trying to figure it out, trying to fix it or figure it out. Or, you know, but this, in this contemplative journey, it's not to say that that doesn't have merit and might be a useful way of exploring our, our discomfort, our pain, the wounds that we carry. But in this contemplative experience, there's the encouragement to not necessarily figure it out or fix it, but just to, to turn to the experience. Just to turn with this presence, this mindfulness that we've been, um, we've been bringing to bear upon the breath and the body. When there's the experience of dukkha, the encouragement is to bring that same quality of mindfulness and presence to the experience of discomfort, of one of the hindrances. Ajahn Charles said a, a very interesting thing. He, he said, all of this difficult practice is a preparation. And we can sit here, sometimes we can sit here, and there's not a lot of suffering. Fine, but it's maybe a bit boring. Or why are we just sitting here with the breath? You know, we could be out there changing the whole world, doing something far more dramatic and interesting, impressive. You know, as a personality, it's, there's not a huge amount that you can really... Uh, you know, get off on on sitting here on a cushion for a week. There's not much you can really write home about. So. But his point was that building this capacity for mindfulness, for the strength of attention with the mundane, with the moments of, you know, when it doesn't seem like very much is happening, or just tolerating being a little... Bit, stretching a bit to bear to bear with 
the difficult sensation of the body or the 40 minutes sitting or something that's not that comfortable or the walking session you know it's not perhaps such a big deal but this capacity to to just bear with the moments of our experience in the ordinariness of life and the unfolding of life has an accumulative effect so in the moments we talked about mindfulness as a practice being preparation in the moments when when we are challenged it was something we can't shift away from, some kind of suffering or some kind of experience that happens to the body or happens in a relationship, a sickness or in death, or some kind of powerful emotion that hits us, threatens to overwhelm. It's in those moments you know, that can that the that the training in mindfulness is important it comes to can come to the forefront to meet to meet the experience to meet the challenge to know how to hold steady ground to to have the capacity to contain the fire or the fear of what can emerge very uh, dear friend of ours and one of the uh, one of our teachers and a senior monk of uh, Chithurst, Ajahn Sujito, who some of you may have met talks about in one of his books um, that he wrote called Rude Awakenings he talks about his um, pilgrimage that he did as an arms mendicant in, in Budgaya in India in, in, in uh, Bihar in, where Budgaya is Bihar in India Bihar for any of you that have been there you will know it's a pretty difficult um, state it's, a, it's a, the heart of India northern India and in the Ganges Plain and it's known for its extreme poverty and it's um, in its lack of safety on the trains you have armed guards to protect the travellers and and he and his attendant were walking through an area of forest. They would, did a walking pilgrimage, collecting alms food on the way, and they um, they were walked in a in a particular area that was actually um, very remote near Rajagir. And um, they'd just been to see Vulture's Peak, and then they wandered off into this forest area, and found themselves surrounded by these daikots, these these guys with machetes who who wanted to rob them. And um, interestingly enough, the attendant's reaction was to run. He just he kind of ran and hid the valuables. Ajahn Sujito's reaction was just to offer his head and start chanting. <laughs> it's the moment when the preparation, what happens... Of course, the guy that ran suddenly realised he left his monk behind. <laughs> so he's busy hiding all the valuables, and then he thinks, "Oh my God!" So he he went back to figure out, try and find out what happened to Ajahn Sujito. And these guys surrounded him and started beating him. And he felt pretty sure they were going to kill him. I mean, it was it was pretty serious. They weren't messing around. 
And so he had to run again. And this time he had so much fear, he was able to sort of catapult himself over, a, a, not exactly a cliff, but a, in, down in through a ravine and through this very thorny bushes. And di- he didn't feel a thing, of course, because he's full of adrenaline. These guys couldn't follow him because you know, it was quite difficult. And meanwhile, Ajahn Sajita was just standing there chanting. You know, and, and they'd stripped him completely, almost naked, of everything. Everything was all their um, clothes, his robe, his bowl, all their records, carefully kept diaries, photos, passports, money, everything just gone. And, and uh, he said that later, he said it was a bit like passing the salt. You know, there was something about it, it was just so karmic. It was just like, okay, this is the moment to let go. You know, this is the moment when I have to. Give over. Um, it's the fruit of preparation, the fruit of someone that had steeped themselves in practice, and when the moment hit, he knew what to do. You know, he just was able to let go. Probably save them. Probably save them from being murdered. Also. Um, Recently, in South Africa, which is also quite a country, a lot of violence, came across someone that had um, also come up against a very uh, difficult situation. She was a practitioner and she was hijacked. Her and her husband were hijacked and were held hostage all night under the threat of being killed. And Many people do get killed, so it wasn't an idle threat. These guys also wanted to rape her. And she was a practitioner, and she'd done a lot of what's called Tonglin practice, which is a practice where you, you consciously work with taking in suffering of other beings and sending out light, compassion. It's a very profound practice. And the, throughout the whole night, her husband was just started going crazy and full of fear. And she just sat there and she just started doing, she was just doing tonglen, tonglen practice, working energetically. And the deeper she got into it, the more she really started to feel a lot of compassion for the guys that were keeping her captive, keeping them captive and threatening to kill them through the night. And in the morning, they released them. They finally released them, which was miraculous in and of itself. And she said, when, when the guy, one, one of the guys let them go, it was actually a guy that tried to rape her. He couldn't quite pull it off. He just turned to her and said, thank you. And somehow, in the course of the night, he had felt the compassion that she was able to hold for, the, for her, for him, for the husband, for the whole situation. These, you know, as my Irish granny would say, God willing, none of us would meet these kind of situations in our life. Um, or such an extreme situation, but nevertheless... You know, we do meet situations that can really overwhelm us. And so 
this preparation, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of presence, the moments of accumulating the strength of mindfulness is not always about the immediate result, whether you've got a peaceful mind, whether you are able to, you know, let go of feeling anxious today or whatever you were working with. But it's really about the accumulative effect of trusting, knowing how to trust the place of steadiness, place of presence, place of clarity, what is true, what can be truly trustworthy. So in meeting, in the, the meeting of the experience of dukkha, it's very profound, it's very transformative, it's very just holding the mindfulness, holding the presence to the experience of dukkha when we're no longer, as um, said in a beautiful poem by a guy called Mark Napo, where he says, having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. I'm no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pool. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. So allowing, you know, just meeting this first noble truth, this experience of dukkha, whether it's a more coarse level, of that, that which is uncomfortable, painful, or existential, don't know what I'm doing here, what I should be doing. It's emotional, psychological pain from the past. Whether it's loneliness, aloneness, uh, just whatever form it takes, whether it's got heat in it, anger, unfulfilled lust, Longing for contact, just con- just holding that within the heart of awareness. So, Buddha encouraged in this recognition of dukkha, just being able to recognize, ah, oh, this is dukkha. To the most subtle, the, the most subtle level of dukkha is this. The word literally meaning du means to be apart from the akash, from the whole from the perfect, from the full, from the complete. The most profound level of our being we feel separate. And, and when we mostly we're we're in reaction to that because it's quite painful. Desire to find completion through another, through sensory experience, or the fear, the vulnerability of our separateness. These very primary energies that shape our pattern, shape our strategies in life, desire and fear, desire to find our fullness. In this poem, having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. It's talking about what Kitty Sara is talking about, 
last night this sense of the disenchantment, having wandered the pathways of the world to find that completion and still in suffering. Having lost enough, having had enough experience, then there comes the place when there's just the opening, the willingness to meet, not to negotiate If I sit long enough, maybe it will go. <laughs> you know, maybe this self of mine will stop suffering <laughs> like mad if I do enough practice. It's just the very nature of the self is rooted in this experience of separateness. So it's bound, it's conditioned to experience suffering, struggle unsatisfactoriness, lack of completion, anxiety, vulnerability. So in this this opportunity that it presents, when we have enough capacity to meet it, as the Buddha encouraged, then it gives us the opportunity to embrace that experience rather than avoid it, distract it, repress it, project it, deny it. We finally can take the move, this bowing into this in the poem just being a soft and sturdy home it's a very nice way of talking about mindfulness it's open, receptive but rooted, sturdy soft and sturdy home in which to allow life to land the life of your body the momentum of your life the feelings sensations practice we've been doing These are the irritations that rub into a pearl so we can talk for a while but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea and we can churn at all that goes wrong but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. So this watering of every living seed as we turn to to meet the experience of dukkha the Buddha goes into the, in the second noble truth, he starts to explore, open up. So it's actually not what's really happening. Suffering isn't really what's happening, actually. It's not really the painful knee, although it's, it's painful. It's not really you know, the, the feeling that might be there. It's not really the desire that's there. It's not really the aversion. It's not really what's there that's suffering, but what he's pointing to is suffering originates from a particular uh, dynamic that's important to understand, and that dynamic he called avijja, which means ignorance, the fundamental ignorance of the of the mind, the not you know, both ignoring the nature of reality, not really understanding the nature of reality. And also the mind or the heart not knowing its own nature. This ignorance, ignoring, not really knowing, not really seeing clearly, generates 
So suffering is something that's been generated not from outside, not from someone doing it to us, but it's generated from this unconsciousness, this unconscious, ignorant, ignoring relationship to how it is. Wanting it to be, and then he distills that even further and says, well, actually, or he distills it, the distillation is the ignorance, but it opens up more even further and says, actually, the expression of this ignorance, as it projects into each moment, is this wanting and not wanting of the mind that we've been contemplating today. Each moment, wanting it not to be like this and wanting it to be another way. It's that primary movement it's projected on in, onto self, projected onto the world that creates this feeling of unsatisfactoriness. It's not enough. It's never enough. It's never complete. It's never full. So there's a the disciple that comes to the Buddha called Jatukani, says, you know, how, how, how does one give up suffering? How, how do we get through suffering? And the Buddha says, uh, Jatukani, you must lose the pleasure, sorry, you must lose the greed for pleasure and see how letting of... You must lose the greed for pleasure and see how letting go of the world is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need to hold on to and there is nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not even cling to the present, you can go from place to place with peace. So... Here, the Buddha gives a hint how, how in the Second Noble Truth, how do we begin to release from this dynamic where we're generating this struggle over and over again based on this lack of ability to really be rooted peacefully, rooted deeply, in the suchness of our own nature, how, how do we begin to release out of this dynamic of struggle, suffering, pain? In the first noble truth we have the Buddha saying there's suffering and suffering needs to be turned to, contemplated. In the second noble truth of practice, so there is that which gives rise to suffering the clinging and the aversions of the mind, and they need to be let go of, or let be, not identified with, not shaped by. One needs to learn to have this skill in knowing how to let go, let be, let things be. It's a practice. One day, Ajahn Chah was walking with some of his disciples in the forest. And they came across some really large boulders. And 
Jin Chai had a really uh, very direct and very simple way of teaching. And he, he was walking and walking in front and turned around to the other monks and he pointed to the boulders and said, are those heavy? And they went, oh yes, Lung Po, they're very, very heavy. He went, well, they're not if you don't pick them up. (laughs) So, you know, in our retreat, you know, as we meet, (laughs) we can get a chance to see what boulders have we picked up. You know, what's weighing us down? You know, the... We haven't finished with the past, have we? We've got a lot of boulders from the past that we we drag around with us. Very heavy. We've got a lot of boulders. It's not the future hasn't even come, but boy, we've still got, you know, we've picked up some stuff about that and stuffed it in our pockets. And not only the past and future, but we're busy trying to grab onto what's flowing through right now. Pin it on the wall as a butterfly in our collection. So this inner attitude is not to say that we perhaps have to go home and chuck everything out. It's, you know, it's maybe one thing we could do. But this inner attitude, this inner way of being, is a, something we can practice. The practice of putting down the boulders, emptying out that which we've grasped letting things be, letting things go, coming to peace with the unsatisfactoriness or how we perceive it of the world, of relationships, of what people do, what we've done, what we feel that we are. Just letting, you know, practicing the letting it be, letting it be. And in the poem, turning to water every living seed, it's just receiving how things are, letting them be, learning in the uh, learning this letting go. In the in the morning, we've been doing the bowing practice, which for some has you know, really been resonating with. For others, it's maybe not comfortable or new. But this bowing practice isn't just about doing a neat little rite and ritual. Uh, that we we pulled out as some kind of ancient Chinese thing, but it's actually a real, a really powerful way of making a suggestion to the heart and the mind about an inner gesture, which becomes the foundation for our practice, which is this ability to meet how it is with this inner sense of bowing, bowing into how it is, letting, relinquishing, offering up our strategies of resistance, denial, distraction, fear, aversion, to receive the teaching of the moment. And again, this can become a really powerful gesture. We had another monastic friend, he's passed over now, his name was Anando, 
he died about 10 years ago or so, perhaps longer, 15 years. Uh, and he was also a resident here in, in the UK for many years, although he originally came from America. And he, as he grew up, he was a really tough kid. He was like the tough kid on the block, always in the scraps, always in the gangs. And then eventually found himself in the military, became a, a, um, a GI, went out to Vietnam, um, and was in the Tet Offensive, which was a pretty heavy battle, and ended up getting shot. And got shot in the back of his head, got blown out which eventually is how he came to die because there was a sort of silent brain tumour that grew and then took over about 20 years later. He was a monk for about 20 years. But he had this very early, powerful early conditioning of being a, a bit a sort of tough warrior type person and was a really tough monk, of course. Went to the monastic life and took quite a lot of that, but turned a lot round and became this, you know, this really wonderful monk, actually really good at training other monks. And, uh, but one day he had, a, he had a really difficult conflict with one of the other monks that went on for a long time. And then one day they were discussing something and they got into an argument. And Ananda just said to this other guy, okay, I'm going to meet you out on the lawn and we'll sort this out. <laughs> <laughs> Not very monk-like. So they, so they pitch out on the front lawn and, you know, like, with a lot of heat, and Ananda finds himself, he's talked about his, his hand going into a fist and pulling back, and all that marine conditioning, that warrior-type conditioning kind of kicking in. And just at the last moment, you remember, you know, actually, I've taken precepts about not thumping my fellow monks and <laughs> not murdering anyone, and, you know. And instead, he found his fist just moving into a, what's called a Y, or the namaste gesture, and he just bowed to this other guy. He just got down on the floor and just bowed to him. And, of course, just blew them both away. And the other monk started crying, and Nando started crying, and they kind of... Well, they sorted it out for a while. It didn't fix it forever, but in the moment it averted, you know, a possible catastrophe on the front lawn of the monastery. <laughs> but this, this bowing, again, this, when these energies hit... This bowing, this being able to, to let go, to let be. And to water every living seed. So not just looking at the struggle, the difficulty, but that living seed of mindfulness. This is the connection with our life force, with our vitality, with wisdom, with our compassion, with our insight. We water that, water that, water that. And in, you know, when it's needed, and there's a moment when it's important to let go, it can happen. And as the Buddha encouraged, as we learn to let be or let go or release from our agitation of getting things right, fixing things, sorting things, getting what we think we need, getting rid of what we don't want, clinging on to the past, projecting and worrying about the future, even letting the present be flow as it will. In, in, in moments when we can really just let be, then it, the heart can open and taste its own peace. Its own unshakability, its own presence.
which we awaken to in the Buddha called is the realization of the third noble truth. That there is that which is transcend, transcendent of the world of change, that island of Nibbana, that heart, unshakable heart, resting in its own nature, here and now, indestructible, immovable, present, not fearful, not longing, not suffering, not desiring, not needing, but complete. The taste of which is liberation. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home into which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. So finishing our day of contemplation, may we share the blessings of our practice uh, for the welfare of each other we're sharing this retreat with and Gaia House and all those that are 
living here, supporting it, connected with it. May we share the fruits of our practice with our families and loved ones and with all beings near and far, those we know or don't know, those dying, being born, all beings in whatever state. May their hearts be free from suffering. May they realize the peace of Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.